Citizen Reporter number 412 for the 26th of February, 2012. Welcome, everyone. Today, a different kind of program. Uh, this is Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, of course, your host, also known as Bicycle Mark on the Internet. This is the podcast dedicated to underreported news. Now, if you've been listening for any period of time, especially going back a few years to 2006, you may have heard the person I want to feature in today's program. Hannah Braun was introduced to me back in 2006, and we did our first podcast together, the first of three, that February, and we spoke about her life, an amazing life, which stretched from Nazi Germany to the colony of Palestine, what would eventually become Israel and her role there, and then her work as an activist in the years to come. Hannah Braun passed away in November of 2011, just a few months ago, and I wanted to feature her first interview, first of those three that she did, and I took out some of the me because, of course, it should be about her. I hope you enjoy this tribute, and, well, it was an honor to have known her, and I feel very fortunate to still be able to go back, listen, and enjoy her wisdom and the things she has still to teach this world. I was born in Berlin, in West, well, what was West, West Berlin and now is again West Berlin, uh, in 1927. And for the first six years of my life, I had no idea about what Judaism meant or anything like that. You know, with Christmas trees and Easter eggs, and it was all very nice. Then, as I start, when I started school, Hitler had come to power the same year, 1933, which was a bit unfortunate. And my mother told me the next day they would ask me my religion at school, and I should say Jewish, and that was fine. There was no problem. And after a short while, I discovered the best problem. It wasn't all, you know, being in Berlin in a large city, it wasn't scary or anything like that. But uh, there were problems. Uh, some funny incidents also occurred. I had a classmate who desperately tried to get me into the Bund Deutscher Mädchen. The, that was the equivalent of the Hitler Youth. And she didn't think that being Jewish was any problem, whatever. <laughs> so there were some amusing bits. But the, the real fear, fear I personally didn't experience. What I did see, though, at times, in the last year that we were there, 37, we, we emigrated to Palestine in October 37. That was in the Sturm, the Stormer, yes. a very Nazi official paper. They had um, they depicted Jews in the way that now Whatever you think or don't think about these Prophet Muhammad uh, cartoons, the facial features are exactly the same. How so? Yeah. Uh, well, very thick, tightly fuzzy hair, mm -hmm. uh, bulbous nose, thick lips. Mm -hmm. that, that's how they depicted us, and how, that's how they're uh, they depicting, depicting Muhammad. So that's one thing. The other thing that I started seeing on walls and so on 
was the swastika and underneath or above <clears throat> Jews out or death to Jews. And that I have taken photos of and worse things than that in the occupied territories on Palestinian houses. With the, the Star of David and death to Arabs and to birth, Arabs to the gas chambers was one of them. Do, do you look at these things and do you say to yourself, um, history is repeating itself or, or yes. what conclusions do yes. you draw? I, I'm, I'm both furious and almost desperate. I think, God, we've been there. Are we going there again? And uh, there was all across Memorial Day and uh, people say never again. But yes, that's true. Hmm. But a friend of mine actually in Israel, a peace of activist, said, yes, never again, but never again to anybody. Well, Not just Jews. L- let's continue. Um, and I have many related questions to what we've just begun talking about. But continuing with the with the route to where you are today, um, in 1937, yeah. you, you arrive in Palestine, then a, yeah. a British colony from Germany. Yeah. And uh, you describe in your memoir, memoirs what it was like there at the time um, yeah. and, and why your family decided to make the move. Um, could you share that with us? Uh, but basically, the, the, the wonderful thing was the beauty. It's a it was a beautiful country, and a lot of it has now been spoiled, but yes. it was really, really beautiful. A lovely, wonderful climate, though in summer people moaned it was too hot. I always <laughs> loved heat, so it didn't bother yes. And we frequently lived by the uh, sea, or not far from the sea, so I, I indulged in my love for swimming. And uh, the freedom... After all, we had been more and more restricted in Berlin. Hmm. You know, we couldn't go to public cinemas, couldn't go on the ice skating ring, couldn't go, you name it, you know, we couldn't go there. And here suddenly we were free to do just about anything we liked. Hmm. So there was that, it's quite a heady atmosphere. And, uh, and together with that, a nationalism, like chauvinism, which I followed blindly. What what I called it in my memoirs actually is what Lenin talked about blind followers of the Soviet uh, regime. It's uh, useful idiots. But but the, the 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 loyalty. What what was it? Was it to, to a government, to a religion, to having a place? Uh, no, certainly not religion. We were completely secular. Now people are a lot more religious, and I think I can explain that, but maybe you don't want to read all that explanation. Wow. But it was totally secular. As a matter of fact, we had four, at least four, if not five, uh, youngsters in my class alone for mixed marriages. Mm-hmm. German, Christian women, or whatever, you know. So it was totally secular. It was nationalistic, and... It wasn't the government. We didn't have a government. Right. But it was the redeeming the, the land of Israel, building it up. As a secular place for many different cultures. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Huh. Um, but, you see, we didn't understand the underlying agenda. Which was? Building it up entirely for Jews that was not explicit. And we didn't understand it at all. And we didn't think we were building it up entirely for Jews. Uh, frankly, we didn't think, full stop. You, you described the slogan uh, that, that you, you ran into occasionally, Hebrew work for Hebrew workers. Absolutely, um, yes. <laughs> now, my mother ne- never went along with that, which was perhaps fortunate, because I had a little bit of a counterweight there, you know. Yes. And, and who was because, behind? But who were the people behind such a slogan? 
that was the what was called the issue of the settlement organizers Ben Gurion very much and all the Moshe uh, Shertok later on called himself Sharet and up to a point even Weizmann they all argued that we had to promote Jewish work Jewish produce Jewish everything mm-hmm. and leave the Arabs out completely hmm And of course it didn't work that way, but quite a few people took them on. So you, you eventually joined this Haganah, um, yes. which was a, a defense organization, yes? It was, well, that's what it was called. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the army is also now called, still called an Israeli defense, defense yes, army. Yes. It's a joke. Yes, well, in the United States, it's <laughs> Department of Defense, yes. <laughs> yeah, but it was a, a, the word means defense. Mm. Uh, um, yeah, and we trained, first of all, in a very funny kind of thing. I don't know if you've ever seen it, where you attack each other with sticks. Okay, no. Um <laughs> And that was unarmed combat and long endurance walks and marches and what have you. Mm-hmm. And since water was scarce, we always had to wait for a certain time till the group leader said, right, now you can have a drink. Yes. <laughs> so it, it was quite tough, but fun for a, grow, for a growing up youngster, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then... A year after we started with that, we were sworn in, and then we started training with arms. There were some episodes which I still find, or at the time, found surprising. On one occasion, we were sent down to the completely Arab sector in Haifa, um, to the, it was uh, Jaffa Square, it's called something else now, not far from the railway station, and we were set just We were told just to stand there and observe. And we actually said, well, why? Who should we observe? There aren't many British there because we were, always, we were always in the belief that we were fighting the British authorities. We wanted to get them out. Those were the goals. Uh, hmm. We wanted to get rid of the British. So what were we doing in the our part of Haifa? Observing. Observing who? Observing what? And we were told, don't ask questions. That's Just do as you are told. So, like bloody fools, we did, but we, we didn't come back with a lot to report, of course. What, what do you think they were looking for? I mean, uh, just observing. Um, I think they were looking a for loyalty from us, how far they could trust us. <laughs> That is the the leaders of the uh, Haganah in the north, and b whether they could see anything. And the foot were suspicious among the other population, which certainly they couldn't. But uh, maybe they thought there may be a glimpse. But that's rubbish. There couldn't have been. It was a 19, it must have been 1944, maybe 45. Well, at that time, the Palestinians weren't up to anything in particular. They were very concerned because there were already rumors about the possible splitting of the country and they were not entirely happy with that but they hadn't in fact started with anything mm-hmm. so 
I don't know what it was in aid of apart from testing our loyalty. Hmm. You, you made some mention of this, and I've, I've seen in films. At that time, Palestinians were, in fact, renting their, their land to um, settlers. Yeah. Hmm. Yes, well, they were not always. There were two things. Sometimes... Um, it wasn't so much their land. It was a, a landlord who very often lived it up in Beirut. And uh. he sold it to the Jewish fund. And then it went to Jewish settlers. The other way was that this uh, old Ottoman rule that if you manage to uh, finalize a fence and a watchtower during the night, then that land is yours. And that was used a lot. Hmm. And it was just stealing Palestinian land from under their feet. And um, on my last visit, I also visited a village, a couple of villages, um, Arab Palestinian villages inside Israel. Hmm. And the organizer of one of these groups, Adrid, um, he told me that very often villagers didn't uh, document all the land, this is yours, this is mine, and so on, because they knew in the village, they knew exactly what's what and who. And because it, it wasn't carefully documented, they lost it completely. But this isn't entirely so. It's a bit oh. of an excuse, because I also know one friend, and they are, they've got a, a very interesting project near Bethlehem. It's called Tent of Nations. Mm -hmm. But she says that they have got all the documents from the Ottoman times, that which land belonged to her family. And they're still not getting anywhere, but Israel is still getting the land. In really, you know, you can't win. <laughs> no. Um, in your writing, Hannah, you, you mention uh, two particular gangs that I became very interested in and I had never heard of, the Etzel and the, and the Stern gangs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, tell uh, us about these gangs. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm not a, a real expert, but um, Etzel and, and Stern, they started off as Beitar. Uh, the movement of Beitar was a very right-wing movement, which uh, the founder of which was somebody like Jabotinsky. Mm-hmm. And Jabotinsky was a revisionist, a very intellectual one, actually. But what he wrote, we found actually appalling. I didn't read much by him. But it's, uh, he's, what he foresaw is exactly what's happening now. He said there can't be two states. There has to be a state for the Jews, and we have to get rid of the Arabs. He said all this very bleakly and bluntly. And the Beitar was a youth movement. Actually, one of our classmates went, and she said they're very good table tennis facilities. <laughs> that was her reason. <laughs> but anyway, it developed afterwards into these two gangs, the Etzel, Irgun Zailumi, it's, it's an abbreviation, it's an acronym, mm -hmm. and uh, Stern is presumably the leader. And I talked to a man when I was on reserve duty much later in 1952, who was, had been Stern, in the Stern gang, and he claimed that they had been much more left-wing. Now, I wouldn't like to vouch for that. They both believed in violence, <laughs> as simple as that. And that's what they practiced. And we, 
acted against them or tried to act against them, but it was, again, it was a farce. And as soon as the British moved out and things started clarifying, they were incorporated in the, to the Israeli army and, they, you know, they became completely acceptable suddenly. And so, so the most violent, I mean, among the most violent gangs... Um, yes. became the leaders of, of what was a, a defense force that was not necessarily always violent. Yeah. Uh. Um, they, they, not all of them became the leaders, but many of them became officers uh-huh. of the Israeli army. And the Israeli army, because they certainly were very well trained in armaments and so on. Hmm. Yeah. Other components of officers we had, and of course also privates, is that when I started college, um, we had a whole influx of young men and a few women as well who had been in the British Army and then got a grant from the British Army to study. So they were an influx. And then, of course, again, they had experience in uh, an army and soldiers, and, and so they gave an impetus. And there were all sorts of people we got uh, to to sort of build up the army, as it were. Hmm. Um, Hannah, I wonder if you could take us to 1947, and the United Nations yeah. creates the state of Israel. Um, were, were you in Jerusalem at that time? I was, yes. And, and what was it like? Well, I can only think of hungry. <laughs> Hunger? <laughs> yes, hungry, yes. We had been under siege. Fair enough, you know, the... I, I think, I can't remember who it was exactly, it was not the Jordanians, could be the Jordanians. Hmm. No, I think it was the Syrians or somebody. Anyway, we were under siege, uh, and Jerusalem, literally, we didn't, the water had been cut off, and there were no deep wells in the Jewish areas, so we had to limit ourselves, and particularly when, if we were not residents, we were only students there. So remember that we got a liter of water per day, mm. and that was for drinking, washing, uh, dishwashing, cleaning, you name it, everything. And it, it really wasn't enough. And we got um, one and a half slices of bread and some weak tea, and if we were lucky, we also got what was it, one additional thing occasionally, a sardine. Hmm. Yes, that's right. Yes, one or even two sardines. When the British left, they left some storehouse, which was full of tin sardines. So we kept getting tin sardines. And that was about it. Yeah, and, and sometimes an onion. And, <laughs> but, so, but so in, in all this hunger, was there celebration? And actually, no. I'm I'm not quite I'm not quite right there. When the state was declared in '47, the hunger hadn't set in quite so much. Yes, we were under siege, but it wasn't quite so bad yet. There were incredible celebrations. We were giddy with joy, if that's the right word to say. And we ended up we walked, danced, if you like, to sort of headquarters of the Jewish settlement with Ben Gurion, who came out and made a speech. I still have got photos from there. And it was fantastic. And when we came back from our living quarters were in a little beautiful, uh, quiet 
summer resort where people came to take the air. It was full of pine trees. But during the winter, it was for students. And usually went by bus. But on that occasion, I think the buses still went. Later on, there was no transport either because there wasn't any petrol. But I'm not sure. We may have walked back. Anyway, we saw on the way back, when we passed the Palestinian quarters, that they, there they looked really miserable and worried and anxious. And I don't know, it can't have been just me. I didn't understand what, what, why are they so unhappy? What are they so unhappy about? And that shows you what kind of idiots we were. You didn't know. Uh, yeah. You, you, you mentioned um, in those following uh, months the um, removal of people from from their from their towns and that was one of the most uh, shocking parts i mean like so many events in in the history of the world that it just yeah. um it shocked me to read it and it must have been a shock to uh to well, to, to observe it i mean what, what did you shock. how did you first learn of this i mean and what did you think but the first one i think i mentioned was Diriasin. <clears throat> that was on the hill opposite where we lived you know it's outside jerusalem just a little suburb. And on the right, there was a village called Diriasin. On the left, there were just hills. And we had been told by the com our commanders, because we did part-time study, we, we finished early, but we did part-time study. And at night, every other night, we were on watch. And we were told um, that we needn't worry about Seen, they were entirely peaceful. If anything comes, it would be from the other side. I wasn't on duty that night. I was asleep. And then about seven in the morning, a friend of mine who lived in the same house and who had been on duty came in and she was crying and she sat there butchering everybody at Yeriasin. It, it was unimaginable. Then they took some of the men and that was Etzel. Hmm. But... Uh, it had actually been, well, tacitly agreed to by the uh, Yeshuv leadership. And they took some of the men and paraded them on a, in a lorry around the streets of Jerusalem. Well, obviously, we still had petrol at the time, and, and that before shooting them. And they massacred all that they could get hold of. There are a few who, there were a few who escaped, who hadn't been in the area scene at the time or managed to escape somehow. But basically, everybody they could find, they massacred. And it was celebrated? No, 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 no. We were shocked. We were dreadfully shocked. And, uh, you know, it was a very big question mark. And to me, it actually meant something because a young man I knew at the time who was a budding sculptor, as it were, and he had designed a possible memorial for Lidice, the Czech village, where all the inhabitants were massacred by the Nazis' uh, collective punishment. And I kept thinking, this is like Lidice. But uh, anyway, you know, we sort of comforted ourselves and said, well, it, it was one thing, it was horrible, but it's maybe it was just this once. It was quite a while. Then when I came home, there was a short truce. I came home to Haifa, and I found out that 
I hadn't heard about more massacres, but I did find out that a lot of the Arab families, the ones from our street certainly, had been forced out. Haifa was clean of Arabs, more or less. Well, not entirely, but more or less cleansed by out of Arabs. And um, actually, of most of the north, they both um, suffered in the north and very many villages and towns in the north where they had been driven out. And it became more disturbing. We were told, and it was rather easier to believe that, that the Arab families had all been repeatedly told by Israel to stay put, not to worry, nothing would happen to them. And they fled out of their own will or just because they were cowards. It's complete rubbish, but it took me years to see through that. But at the time, it was more comfortable to believe it. As a matter of fact, um, on my last visit to this um, visit to this village inside Israel, Dawood, the organizer, said that in their village, which has also been destroyed, he took me there, and it's just a lot of boulders and and a partly destroyed mosque. And he said they had actually made an agreement with the Jewish settlers around that they would not fight, they would not attack, and, you know, they are surrendering in peace. And when the Haganah came, they put up the white flag from the top of the mosque. And the Haganah broke the agreement just like that and destroyed the village and drove them out. A lot of them were killed, but it, it wasn't a massacre as such, but... They lost the village just like that because um, they didn't honor the agreement. Over the years, most people, obviously not all, but many people, started um, to feel more and more fear and hatred of Arabs, and particularly the young ones, the, the ones who hadn't actually ever seen or experienced Arabs face to face. You know, they, they grew up in an environment where there were no Arabs around, very easy. Or where there may be occasionally you saw somebody uh, building workers or, or cleaners or something, but otherwise not as equal human beings at all, if, if they saw them. So it was very easy to grow up with a kind of hatred and fear of the other. And, and the idea that it used to be the Nazis who who were out for us, for the Jews. Now it was suddenly the Arabs. And, you know, it was very easy to transfer that feeling. And I think that grew, and the powers that be made use of it. That, uh, the, I don't know, it, it was in 1994, I think, when I visited there, in a shop. The owner was... Persian from Iran, but the Farsi Jews are known as Persian. And uh, there was another woman there, a Turkish woman. And when I tried to say something positive about the Palestinians or Arabs, they turned on me and said, you are Ashkenazis are European Jews. They said, you don't know anything. You don't know what they are like. They hate us and they fear us. I thought, my God. You don't know. I didn't say it because it was useless. You know, they were so furious. I said, but you don't know. A Persian doesn't know what Arabs are like, and a Turk knows it even less. Hmm. And I lived there with Arabs, so I do know. But 
you know, there was no point discussing it with them. Uh, and in the same way that you find these completely crazed, bigoted Zionists, where reason simply doesn't enter into it. And that, by the way, let me just come back to that, to religion. You know, we were totally secular. Yeah. But this is not entirely so anymore. You see more and more in the army. It would have been laughed at. You see more and more um, young men, even, with a, a head covering, little cappy on. Mm-hmm. And I can only explain it, that the r- rationale behind the Jewish, exclusively Jewish state, is that God promised us. Well, if you then say, well, I don't actually believe in God, then where does that leave you? I don't know. I mean, that's simplification, but I think up to a point that is actually true. The term Zionist uh, gets me a lot. I've always heard it used, especially in journalistic uh, context or or political context, as a sort of insult or a label for extremists in in Israel. What is, is, maybe we can set it straight, what does Zionist mean uh, as far as you're concerned? A Zionist means somebody who, somebody who believes in a state of Israel for Jews. Now, depending how left-wing or right-wing you are, but if that, then that's where you draw the borders. Do you draw the borders at 1967? You know, that is uh, 1967, the whole West Bank and Gaza Strip were occupied. That's if you're left-wing, you draw the borders there. If you're right-wing, you'd say from uh, the the sea to the river of Jordan. Depends exactly what your politics are. But that is a Zionist. When when I was a child in Germany, uh, my mother explained, uh, not only my mother, I think lots of her friends, they said a Zionist is someone who gives money to someone else to, uh, to persuade a third person to emigrate to Palestine. <laughs> that was their definition. <laughs> And do you find you run into people that have different definitions for this? Um, oh, yes. Mm. I mean, they all say a Jewish state, a Jewish country for Jews. But how far it should extend, I think that depends a bit on on your political uh, affiliations. Your eventual leaving of Israel, could you, could you talk about what led to you leaving? Well, quite to be very honest, I wouldn't have left. I was very, very critical. I wasn't an anti-Zionist at that time yet. But uh, I would have stayed because I loved the place so much. However, I would got married by then, and my ex-husband was, for him, the only place to live in was Europe. What he hated about living in Israel wasn't just the politics. It was that as well. But it was that it wasn't Europe. And that's what I loved. But uh, he got an invitation eventually from Bristol University in the United Kingdom as a research research fellow, and and that's what made us leave. But by that time, we were already aware that he was being sidelined and marginalized at university. He was at the Hebrew University, and that our mail was being opened, and there were all sorts of warning signs, as it were, that we weren't going to get far because we wouldn't keep our mouth shut. Yeah. And, and since you, since moving to England, um, what what kind of activities are you involved in um, 
in terms of, uh, as you called it, uh, becoming an anti-Zionist? Yes. Well, I started reading more because, uh, first of all, there is the, the physical distance, which gives you the ability to observe more. And uh, I did visit Israel from time to time, quite a lot, actually, because I still yearned for it. But it was after Begin, it was so horrible. I felt totally alienated, and I thought, no, I'm not going anymore. And I didn't go anymore till, till I went with the delegation of British women in the first intifada. But uh, that was one thing. But I started reading more, and I started getting more and more concerned of what was behind all this. And then I got to know quite a few Palestinian students at the time. And I heard them talk. And then one very interesting occasion was that there was a delightful music teacher. Well, he had a sort of music academy in Haifa, um, Yosef Abilea. And he had a very mixed uh, group of students there. One was my classmate, she learned the piano. But there were Greeks and Armenians and Arabs and, and I think even some British at the time, I don't know. Um, and we all sat together at the annual concert, so I knew about him, I knew him. And then they, the Palestinian students that was in Birmingham when we lived there, uh, said, would I like to come? He's coming for a talk. And I said, oh, yes, I would. And he was pleading, it's really quite old with his wife, he was pleading for recognition of Palestinian rights and aspirations at that time. And I, I even, I thought even more, I, you know, I started to feel that things are not right. I then started something which isn't political aid, actually, it turned out to be, but I didn't mean it in a political way. I wanted to learn some of the dances of all these minorities we had in Birmingham, endless numbers, not to mention all the overseas students. And, and I hope the Palestinians in as well. And it, it, sort of, it, it polarized in some funny way because, you know, we used to have a program for a year in advance. Every fourth Sunday, we had a group from some minority coming, teaching us their dances and bringing some samples of their food. And somebody looked at my program for the forthcoming year and said, do you specialize in in dances of the underdog? <laughs> <laughs> I certainly didn't, <laughs> consciously, but actually, I obviously did. Hmm. And again, I, I got more and more thinking, now these are... These people need their rights. They deserve their rights. Why? What's going on then? I started reading Edward Said and mm. Rosemary Said and various other um, books that had been written, including some Israelis. And then eventually, although I didn't go to Israel anymore, there was the, the invasion of Lebanon, and I read some of the articles and the the terrible things that. Israelis felt and and wrote. Uh, there was somebody, Jacobo Timmerman, um, who came from Argentina, but he he wrote about this invasion of the Lebanon, and he was horrified. 
and his son came to ask him if he, he felt uneasy about it. Should he desert or, or should he just do his duty? And the father advises him to desert because of the immorality of the whole thing. And then I, somehow it clicked together. I thought, well, yes, but that's what we were aiming for in a way. That's what, what, it's, what was going to happen. And that's when I became an anti-Zionist. And so as an anti-Zionist who, who makes the occasional uh, voyage, you've, you've gone in, in more than one delegation, yes, to, to Palestine already? Yes. Uh, well, the first one was a delegation. Then in 94, I went on my own. And then the next one, that was in 2001 to another. It wasn't the delegation. It was the International Solidarity Movement, where we actually were based in a village in the Palestinian territories, and we went to help and work with them every day in a slightly different place in the area. And then in the evening came back to the village. We also tried in vain. Now you wouldn't even try, but at that time there wasn't a wall yet. We tried in vain on Christmas Day to go. And when I say we, that meant uh, Americans, Palestinians, Italians, French, um, internationals usually, and, and some Israelis. And it included certainly the the priests of the of Bethlehem. They went in front, as well as an American priest. And uh, we tried to walk from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And no way, they wouldn't let us. And it got quite unpleasant. It got, you know, they were shoving and kicking and what have you. It wasn't very nice. So what about, what about hope? I use the word hope. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you see any signs, whether it be a person or a movement in Israel or outside of Israel, um, that might th- turn things around? Where do you look for, for hope? I don't know. I really don't know. I'm, I try not to lose hope. It's, just, it's so easy to lose hope. If you lose hope, hope you just give up and sit down and do nothing. So even if it doesn't help what I do, I still try to do something. And I think there are enough good, decent people about who will try. Whether that will turn things for the better, I'm not at all sure. It could be that it would end, it will end in a dreadful bloodbath before some kind of justice will emerge. I don't know, but, you know, I I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but I'm not terribly hopeful. There are some excellent Palestinian thinkers, writers, and just people who endure. It's just the sheer endurance that they have. They've got a word for samud in Arabic, and that means a power of endurance, and they certainly have got that. And there are some very far-sighted and very decent Israelis. Unfortunately, not many, but they do exist. And then there are a fair number of various international people who have taken this cause up. Well, Hannah Braun, thank you very much. And, uh, You're very welcome. And we wish you luck with all your endeavors, and I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you very much. So there you have it. Uh, we're back here in 2012 and just having suffered the loss of a, a great person, but fortunately we don't lose her words and her message. 
Uh, and, and just while you're listening, I think you can really lose track of what year we're talking about because so much of this history is repeated and we don't even realize it sometimes. Um, I wanted to mention, to keep Hannah's message alive, there's a book, her memoirs, among other things. And you can go Google Weeds Don't Perish, weeds like plants, Weeds Don't Perish. It's available from Garnet Publishing. You can go to Garnet publishing.co.uk links are available on citizenreporter.org and i think that's it i'll leave it at this for today's program i hope you've enjoyed this small tribute uh to hannah braun a name who will always mean a lot to me and on this program and surely in the future i will i will feature more of our old conversations i'm, I'm again i'm so honored to have them and i'm so sad to not get to speak to her again but we must go on uh, thanks so much for listening. Again, citizenreporter.org is the website. I'm Mark Fonseca Renderu. See you next time. See ya. Is it a myth? All that we were grateful. Now that the crowns are bloody, I see my brother attacking. The statue's too heavy for packing. Say yeah. Da 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 da. Is it true that we had a daughter by the name of Light, and that violent white shadows? Stole her in the dark of night. Say yeah. Da 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 singing. Da 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 da. Is it true that we had a daughter? By the name of light And those violent white shadows Stole her in the dark of night Say yeah da 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 Say yeah da 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 so now we dance to the siren rhythm of our enemies and when they copy our steps they trip and fall they trip and fall they trip and fall to the silent venom of our ghost humming da 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 da, say yeah. Da 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 da, da 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 da.